Two brothers on their way, two brothers on their way, two brothers on their way, one wore blue and one wore gray. I'm excited to welcome this week's Tierra Talk Show guest, former Imagineer and project manager, Jane Jackson, to the show. Welcome, Jane. Thank you, Tammy. I really am excited to have you on the show today because you're one of the reasons that um, a friend of ours, our mutual friend of ours, Ali Olmo, um, is so recognized for her singing voice, for her portrayal of the the two brothers song in the american adventure which was because you were the project manager at the time but what led you up to this point to be a project manager i had been working in operations uh at the magic kingdom uh at disney i started in 1971 or 72 as a parking lot attendant um and gradually was uh promoted into a management position, and uh, when they were getting ready to design Epcot, they took, I think it was about 12 of us out of the Florida Operations Division and sent us to California as project coordinators to work with the designers to make sure that the park was operable, that it had the capacities, uh, it had the drinking fountains, it had bathrooms, it had all the things that designers don't necessarily think about because they've never operated a park. So uh, 12 of us or 15 of us went out there armed with this great big book called a Pico book with all of the design standards that the operations division wanted incorporated into the park. Um, And one of my projects as coordinator was um, American Adventure. And in fact, when Allie got involved, I was still a coordinator. I was not a project manager. Um, I was working with a show producer by the name of Randy Bright, and he had already recorded this song uh, called Two Brothers uh, to go along with a Matthew Brady montage of Civil War photos. And I thought it was a song that needed to be sung by a mother, not a man, and Randy had recorded it with a man. Um, so I took a copy of it home. Allie was staying with me temporarily. She had just moved out to LA. Um, and I had her listen to it and said, can you, can you sing this? I just want to show him that it needs a female voice as opposed to a man's. And she said, sure. So we recorded it in, in my apartment. Um, and the next day I took it in, I put it on Randy's desk with a note saying, would you listen to this, please? Um, and he called me at the end of the day and said, I love this. And I said, great. Cause I just, I, you know, the point was it needed a mother's touch. And he says, no, I love this woman's voice. Uh, and I would like to use her. And I went great. <laughs> so that's how Allie sang the song. I just find that story amazing because yeah, you, you know, it, it's it's so interesting. I think that that is the most memorable point in that show because they they reused it when they updated the the um, um, the great moments with Mr. Lincoln in Disneyland. So not only is Allie being heard in Disney World by millions of people each year, <laughs> she's being mm-hmm. heard by millions of people in Disneyland. Something that they reused because it's so 
well-known. And when Allie and I were in Disney World in October, we got to speak to a lot of the cast members that currently work there. And that is the most asked question. Who is the singer of Two Brothers? Yeah, I remember shortly after we opened um, that they were... They were getting that question all the time. They came to me and asked who it was that was singing it, you know, and I gave them all the information. But then when Allie told me about the October thing at Disney World, I was blown away by the number of people that, you know, that has affected, et cetera, et cetera. It was it was such a beautiful moment to have her up there to sing. We had 400 people there at the Retro WDW podcast event, and they were so gracious to fly us both in. We had one afternoon of singing the song twice, but we had a couple months of trying to sing it together on FaceTime, and the, peop- the it, people were crying. She had the she had the only standing ovation during that entire event. And um, I don't think she realized how many people adored her. So many people were coming up to her. And I was so, I, it was thrilling just to see that. You know what I mean? What are the odds? And and thanks to you for, for having that moment of, you know, a female perspective is is very much needed for a song like that especially i think most of the music in in that show i don't think a lot of it's it's mainly sung by the the main female uh, main male singer and um, who's a great singer as well too but you know it, it's good to have those those representations right. of, of females um in, in the right. project yeah it was uh, and actually ali came to visit me after the october event um, and she was, she was, she was just totally overwhelmed by the reception that she got there and the enthusiasm for that song. She had never thought it was anything like that, nor had I. You were just saying, we, we were talking a little off air. You were technically one of the first female project managers at WDI. This was something that was. I, I, I believe I, I was the first female project manager at WDI, yes. How and do you what f- was interesting, the, the uh, project I was, American Adventure was one of the pavilions I had as a coordinator. And the project manager that I was working with was older. And, you know, it, it's a lot of stress designing and building parks of this size. And I think he just decided that he, you know, didn't want to do it anymore. So he retired. Um and we were about a year out from opening, I would say, a year, year and a half out from opening. Um, and so they, it was, it was interesting, actually. I was on vacation. I had been in Hawaii for a couple of weeks. And on the way back, I stopped in Monterey. I'll never forget this, Monterey, California. Um, and I was in a gift shop there, and I ran into one of the engineers from from WDI, uh, and he said, congratulations. And I said, what are you talking about? Um, I thought he was congratulating me on my vacation. And he said, I hear you're going to be project manager of American Adventure. And I said, what are you talking about? Um, <laughs> and sure enough, I got back from vacation, and they called me into the office and asked me whether I'd be interested in the job, which I said yes with a bit of trepidation, only because... I had never read a blueprint in my life. I'd never had a construction hat on in my life. I'd never been on a construction site in my life. Um, 
it was really way beyond me. But the people uh, that I worked for had the confidence in me, which made me believe in myself, which is true of almost anything, you know. If you have someone who has the confidence in you, uh, you begin to have the confidence in yourself. So I took it on, and uh, I had a great team. That's the only way any of this ever gets done is team. It's never an individual. It it just sounds like one of those movie scenarios where the, the the protagonist has is is thrust into a situation and has to right. go ahead and and do the best they can with it and this was a major project because epcot was this this it was being built up to be something amazing it was supposed to be yep. you know walt's vision of the future and also additions and, and different things added to it so when you are for, so you now you're brought on as the project manager. What, what what's the first thing that has to be done? Because I'm assuming Randy Bright, who was the show producer, he mm-hmm. was already in the midst of creating this project. So how far along was it already? You know, it was interesting when I uh, when I first came on board, seventy hmm, eight, I think later seventy eight. The concept that they were working with. Oh boy, this memory, this is a memory, had been done by Emil Curry, who used to be, I guess, a big uh, movie guy. And it was wonderful for the movies, but what he had envisioned was very difficult, in fact, impossible to do in 3D. He had Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson walking into a hot air balloon and taking off over the audience. Things like that. So when I first got involved, it was nowhere. I mean, the same people were involved, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and all of that. But it had to be rewritten by someone who understood uh, the limitations of doing it in 3D, not a movie person. The other thing about Epcot was that everything was so technologically advanced. American Adventure was no exception to that. Uh, So once we got the concept pretty well finished, we had a one-inch scale three-dimensional model where we would operate things like puppets um, to sell it to Cardwalker was the head of the uh, Disney operation or Disney at the time. Uh, And once everybody got real excited about Randy was the one that really salvaged the entire thing. Uh, from the first concepts. Um, So he was the one that got the credit for that. He was a writer. Uh, So we were very behind schedule most of the time because of that, because they'd spent so much time working, trying to work a concept that wasn't going to work. And so Randy was really the hero of that, of bringing it into perspective and uh, getting something that we could actually produce. And I'm glad um, I'm glad you brought Randy up. I just want to uh, notate here that a lot of people, um, I just want to add here that a, a lot of people I don't think realize that Randy had, had passed away very early in life, and um, th- there's so much, there's so little footage of him, and there are a couple. I think there's like two documentaries about the attraction, and he just mm-hmm. seems so passionate about it. So, what was it like working with him? 
on this project because it sounds like he had just as much faith in you because he was one of your team members. Uh, I, I think he, he did. Randy actually used to work at the university at Walt Disney World. He was a, he was a writer at the university there. Uh, and he, I don't know how he got to the imaginary end of it. That happened before me. Um, not before me. I mean, I was still in operations. Uh, but so we, we knew of each other. We didn't know each other. Um, so we had a learning experience also because we both came, we knew each other in different roles than the new ones we were performing. Uh, and I, as I said, he was credited with resurrecting the American adventure only because it was so far off from being producible um, and he was, he was able to get it to where we could actually implement it. Um, he was a very passionate person and he was very passionate about American adventure. That was one of the scariest things. Um, I remember uh, after we were in programming, uh, everything had been built. We were on site, we were programming it and he, of course, was still in California, <clears throat> and I think it was the day before Epcot was to open. Um, we were not ready. Uh, we were operating everything by hand down below. Um, I mean, we weren't lifting the lifts, lifts by any means, but the computer wasn't operating it. We had people down there who were operating it and watching everything. Uh, and he was gonna he was gonna see one of the first shows that we were doing and I was scared to death and I came up afterwards and he was in tears he was so happy he was so happy that made it all worthwhile and the fact that it's still running to this day like clockwork after all of these years is is unbelievable because it's one of the I guess one of the remaining the last remaining attractions that has been untouched since opening day yeah and what's interesting about that Tammy is I would say 85% of the team uh, that did it, including me, had never done anything like this before in our lives. And that was a bad thing, and it was a good thing. The bad thing was we had no idea what we were doing. (laughs) It scared you. (laughs) we We had the energy and the passion, and failure wasn't an option. I mean, we never even thought we could fail. Um, so, and we, I mean, it took the last four months, we lived in the building. We had sleeping bags with radios next to our ears in case we could grab a couple hours sleep. Um, it was, and yet nobody was complaining. We were all sleep deprived. We were exhausted. We were bringing food in. We didn't, people couldn't leave (laughs) to go grab something to eat. We would bring pizzas and hamburgers and all that horrible food in. Um, we never <laughs> left. We were like cave dwellers. Well, what was the what did the building look like to give our our listeners a perspective? Because it, obviously, it wasn't fully furnished inside, correct? Well, we first of all mainly lived in the theater in the pit because uh, that's where the show took place. Uh, the front of the building was pretty well done. I mean, it was carpeted. 
The Hall of Flags was finished. The theater was finished, pretty much so. Uh, the contractor was the the general contractor for the facility was not out of there because we kept discovering things that we didn't have power where we needed it or we, you know, something like that. But for the most part, the last three months, um, they were only doing punch list type things. Well, that's not true, actually. The last month, they were only doing punch list type things. But they weren't there during the night. They, you know, they would work their normal shift and then, and we would be working in the pit. They were pretty much out of the pit, which is where all the show action equipment and all the electronics were. We were pit dwellers. So the day that it opened, were were you there? Mm -hmm. You were present for that entire day, obviously. What was Mm -hmm. the reaction you were seeing? Was it exactly what you had hoped or was it something entirely different than you had expected? No, it was phenomenal. People loved the show. They loved the show. Uh, you know, we were still working on it, so it was hard for us to think of it as finished. I don't think uh, Glenn Burkett, who was the uh, he was the lead show engineer on it. That's a that's a really another story. When I had worked in operations in Fantasyland, I was the supervisor of Fantasyland. Glenn was uh, worked on weekends in Fantasyland because he was going to college. Um, and he would, he was a lead. We paid him 25 cents more an hour to run the clipboard and things like that. So I knew Glenn very well. When I was at WDI as a coordinator, Glenn called me and said, well, I've graduated. I'd like to work for WDI. I said, well, (laughs) I'll see if I can set up an interview for you, but I have nothing to say about the matter. So I set up an interview for him and he came out and uh, about two weeks later, I got a phone call from him. He got a, he said, I got a job and I was excited for him. Uh, and the next thing I know, he's been assigned to American Adventure as the lead show control engineer <laughs> directly out of college. And the show control system was massive and very advanced. So I think Glad and his group were probably there for another three or four months living in the pits, making sure that the show continued to go on while they um, continued at night to finalize it and get it totally computerized. I think a lot of people don't realize that it's a monster behind the scenes <laughs> of having it work. <laughs> I, you, you know what? It? I was going to in October and they were sold out on the, it's a four hour tour you have to take to go to Animal Kingdom, Magic Kingdom, and then you end it in Epcot at the American Adventure. I have seen the footage from underneath from those documentaries. So I, I know it is a monster. I haven't seen it in person yet. I really do want to. But my God, I, I you know, sometimes I wonder, I'm, I'm like, you know, this is the, 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 the huge quality to this is something you usually don't see nowadays with the new attractions. Unlike something with the new Star Wars ride that people are thrilled because it's like 15 minutes long and it has all these major factors similar to how crazy the, the, the programming is for the American adventure. Yeah. It it is it, it's an attraction in itself. It certainly was in the first ten years after opening. I don't know. I don't know anything about what's being created now. Um, but I would say after the first ten years of opening, that they could have charged money to go down to the pit and watch that whole thing operate. Plus, the animation was pretty much uh, state of the art at that time too. Walking Ben Franklin, et cetera. You know, the other thing that I didn't mention when I was a coordinator and first working out there. 
a lot of those paintings, et cetera, there were so many of the old Walt guys still working at WDI at that time. And it was so much fun. I would go up to their offices every day, the Clem Halls, the Herbie Ryman's, the Guy Deals, the Gene Johnson's, Bill Sullivan. Um, and as a coordinator, I, you know, was always going, what do you need? What do you need? And, and sometimes like one time I was taking them down to Western costume. We were getting ready to do the, um, <clears throat> the statues in the theater. Um, and we went down. They all wanted to go to Western Costume to to pick costumes for all of these statues. What they you know, before they were sculpted. So I got a big van and I put them all in the van and we drove down. And they usually they were a really talkative group. And I noticed about five minutes into it they weren't talking. And I pulled in front of Western Auto and I parked it and I turned around and said, "Well, this is it, right?" And they went, oh, "You drive just like a man." And I laughed so hard at that. They were so funny. I loved working with them. Walt Tyler, who was the, uh, an art director on the show that came from the movie industry. It was fun working with all of those guys. And they're all gone now. How do you feel the time? So as a woman, you know what I mean? You're, you're the first show manager that uh, WDI had. What was the reaction to that? Was there anything notable that you remember to that? Because I think nowadays it's, it's something that's being brought up, you know, that women aren't included or represented as mu- as often. And you're 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 paving the way for future WDI um, female employees. You know, it's interesting. I um, I remember two incidences where I felt I was being tested. I guess. One was shortly after they named me project manager. um, There was a disagreement between our in-house structural engineer and the structural engineer of the firm who was doing the working drawings, HHCP. And it was over lintels. Now, I knew lintel was a bean. I had no idea what a lintel was. as it turned out, it's a support thing over a window or a door. Um, and the in-house structural engineer wanted it one way. And the person, uh, the arch- the structural engineer in Florida with HHCP, Bob Conrad, thought it would be another way. And so they both came to me with wanted a resolution. Well, I first had to educate myself on what a lintel was. Um, and then... And then I had to make a I had to make a decision on it, which I did. Um, but I thought that that was that was a test. The second test was I had just come on site, the construction site. It was they were getting ready to top. They had just topped off the steel, and you know when you top off steel, you put a big flag up. It's a big construction site thing. Um, so we had this big steel structure of American adventure. And we had a flag up at the top that had gotten twisted around, et cetera, et cetera. So the construction guys came up to me and said, the flag's twisted. We need someone to go up and untwist it. Um, so the director, Jim Nagy, who was the director of Epcot, he was a Tishman guy, Tishman guy, but he, WDI had put him in the position of director. He was the director of the whole thing came up and said, Jane, don't do it. And I said, I have to do it. He goes, don't do it. I said, I have to do it. 
So they brought out this big crane and I stepped on the crane and they took me up to the top of the building and I unfurled the flag and they, and I was coming down and they swung me out over the lagoon and dropped me uh, a free fall in a basket. Um, scared the living daylights out of me, but I had, I was chewing bubble gum. I remember this vis- vividly. And then they, they didn't put me in the water. I'm not even sure there was water in it. Um, but then they swung me back out in front of American Adventure and put the basket down and I walked out and I blew a bubble. Um, and then walked in the building and started to shake because it scared the living daylights out of me. So those were two times when I remember being tested. I never remember being tested other than that. I mean, every day was a test. Decisions were being made every day. We were meeting three. We had team meetings three times a day. The last one was at 2 a.m. Every time a new shift started, we'd have a meeting. Um, so, you know, you were there all the time. I don't. It was a team effort. And it's still a good show. Kudos to, you know, Randy and Rick Rothschild for making it such a good show. It's still a good show. Were were there any other notable Disney projects that come to mind after the American Adventure that you remember being a part of? Uh, Pleasure Island. I started on Pleasure Island, but that's when I left Disney and went to Universal. And and what did you work on at Universal when you did that transition? Universal, I was the show producer for E.T., Oh, Jane. Which was great. That's, yeah. Oh, oh, I just was back at Universal in October, and I it's love going on that ride. It's so amazing. That was a wonderful show to work on. It was uh, Disney and Universal operate in totally different manners. So, and both of them are good. But I went from a um, an organization such as Disney that, um. You're not an entrepreneur. In other words, you have a special effects guy, you have a film guy, you have engineers, you have everybody that are employed by Disney there that are looking at everything. At Universal, you're an entrepreneur. uh, They hire you as a show producer, and then you're responsible for finding everybody on the outside to do it, which was, again, a cold splash of water, uh, but a great learning curve. And plus, obviously, the opportunity to work with Spielberg. What was that like? He must have been thrilled because I think he says that that's his favorite film. So to make an attraction on it, what was that yeah. like? He, you know, it was it was wonderful. It was uh, it was an interesting thing to sit through in the beginning because he has all these wonderful ideas. Again, he's a he's a film man. Uh, there's things you can do in film that you cannot do in three dimensional theme park world. Um, so, you know, it would be interesting to sit in these meetings where everybody was throwing out ideas, especially Stephen, um, and everybody would shake their head, oh, great idea, great idea. And then I would be sitting there going, oh, I'm the one responsible for trying to get this done. How would I do it? And saying, well, let's think about this. I'm not sure we can do this, which, you know, nobody wanted to say to Stephen, no, we can't do it, but. You have to interject a little bit of reality. And he was so open to all of it. Even when you said, I don't think we can do that. You go, yeah, you're right. You know, so he was he was wonderful to work with. When we were in programming mode in the park um, and he was 
he was coming to see it. And we, we were having issues because all the vehicles weren't going at the same speed, which was difficult to program a ride around, you know, all the animation, everything was occurring if, if all the vehicles were going different speeds because they all had their own motor controller. So he shows up at midnight or 11 o'clock one night with the, the head of marketing for Universal Studios. And he says, can I ride it? And I said, sure, but here's where we are. And I said, we're having issues with the vehicle speeds. You never know what you're going to get when you get to the green planet. Um, and you have all of those little sprites and you have Big Zom, who's the great big creature in this thing who throws those cannonballs of water at you know, in front of your vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, well, with with vehicles not going the same speed, it was tough. It was difficult to program Big Zom because you never knew where that water ball was going to hit. So the first time we went through, I remember Stephen was in his normal jeans and t-shirts and hoodie. Uh, the vice president of marketing was in an Italian tweed suit and Italian loafers, et cetera, et cetera. So we get on this nine, I think it's a nine person vehicle we're going through. I was riding it with them and we come into the green planet scene and big, big, big Zom, that was his name, big Zom, threw his cannonball of water and it hit the vice president of marketing smack. (laughs) He was soaked. He was absolutely soaked. And so we got off the ride and Spielberg went, that was great. And. David was not happy um, uh, at all. Uh, and Spielberg says, I want to do it again. Can I do it again? And I said, yeah, but you just, you know, again, let me tell you, we don't know what's happening here. We can't figure out why these vehicles are. He said, that's okay. Let's go. And, and then he, he turned to David, the vice president of marketing, and said, you sit in my seat. I'll sit in your seat. Okay, so we take off again, and we enter the green planet, and Big Zom throws his cannonball of water, and who does it hit? The vice president of marketing again. Smack. (laughs) Spielberg's just as dry as can be. He's laughing. I'm laughing at this point because, and I think the marketing guy thought it was intentional, you know, that we had done this intentionally. He didn't understand then until we got this problem resolved on vehicle speeds, we never knew who Big Zom was going to hit. And I, I have to ask you, what have you been up to to since you've kind of, you know, moved from Disney and gone on to Universal? Are, are you still working on projects or are you working on something I, I entirely not. different? I, re- I retired um, about 12 years ago. After I left Universal, I had my own company with two other people and we continued to do design and management of themed entertainment. Um including uh, Universal was one of our clients, as were Hard Rock and IMAX and House of Blues and Kennedy Space Center and clients like that. And then I I retired and uh, left the theme park world. It was lovely. I loved it. It was a wonderful, wonderful career to have. I got to do so much. I'm so thankful for the career. And I got to have, meet some wonderful people and have very good friends from from the industry um but you know you you can't live in the past Mm -hmm. there's other things to do Mm -hmm. remember each attraction is about five thousand people's legacy 
it becomes your life. It's very difficult not to have it become your life because you're working to a schedule, a budget, and trying to keep up the quality. It's very difficult. So it's fun not to have to do it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we end our conversation, I have three uh, Disney-themed questions I ask to each guest on the show. Uh, they're no trivia. They're just fun, you know, themed questions. So the Donald okay. one is, as a child, what Disney film do you remember seeing for the first time in the movie theater? I think it was Dumbo. And our goofy question, what Disney character do you think would be your best friend if you got to meet them in person? Eeyore. And finally, our Mickey question If I asked you to name any Disney song at this very moment, what immediately comes to mind? Oh, my God. A small world. Well, it is a world of laughter and it's a world of tears. And um, it's it's been such an honor to kind of dive into the world that you were immersed in as an Imagineer, Jane. So thank you again for being on the show. This was such a pleasure to talk to you. And hopefully I'll get to meet you and shake your hand in person at some point. (laughs) Okay, thanks, Tammy, and good luck with your podcast. No, no, ain't nothing gonna ruin today. We're all together. That's what counts. <laughs>